Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the Recovered AF podcast. My name is Aaron, and I am a co-host of this podcast. My other co-host, Kyle, is going to give us a quick disclaimer before we start. Yeah, hey, how's it going? Uh, we do this disclaimer on every episode. Uh, we are not affiliated with any 12-step organization, uh, any organization at all, really, and that's important to discuss today because we do have a couple of individuals as guests that have, uh, they work for an organization and have a different perspective on recovery. And since we're not affiliated with any 12-step stuff and Aaron and I can get on whoever we want, we figured this would be a great opportunity to uh, get another perspective, hear some other people's experience and what they do. So with that said, our guests are Stephen Slate and Michelle Dunbar. Um, Stephen, would you mind doing a quick intro explaining what it is that you do and then Michelle, the same thing after. Sure. All right. So, um, both Michelle and I, um, you know, I've come from a a 12 step or treatment background originally. Um, and, uh, you know, we found that that model was you know, I think, well, I won't speak for Michelle. I found that that model for myself um, was kind of counterproductive. And uh, to put it lightly, because sort of almost from the moment I started going into um, treatment and meetings, I descended even, you know, worse into problem uh, drug use. So, um I did about five years in the sort of recovery uh, system, and I ended up at the St. Jude Retreat House, which is um, where Michelle was working at the time. This is back in 2002, and um, I was presented a different way to look at things there, and really the, the easiest way to boil it down is you don't have a disease, you're doing uh, heroin, you're shooting up heroin and cocaine because you're trying to find happiness. And you know what, um, you know, so you've been in control the whole time. It's been, you've been doing what you want to do for better or for worse, despite all of its sort of pitfalls, um, it is what you want to do. and. I agreed with that message. It resonated with me. It's what I originally thought from the first time that I saw a counselor, but it was like this disease thing was, they were trying to shove it in there on me um, and, you know, convinced me that I had this lifelong battle ahead of me and, and, and I couldn't stop without, you know, sort of constantly working on that. So, um, so it was, you don't have a disease, you're trying to find happiness in this, and you might be happier making a change, entertain that possibility, and make your choices based on that, rather than, well, I have to make sure that I don't go to jail, I have to quit because I'm going to die. I have, you know, instead of just thinking about all the consequences, think about um, what are the upsides to your options, and... Um, and just move forward, make your choice, and move on. So um, I 
that was like an instant turnaround for me at that point. Um, I've never uh, had a problem with the drugs again, and it's 17 years now. Um, and so at some point I went to work for them and I worked in the retreat for a while and, um, and went back, then I went back to college, did different things. And, um, but this was still my passion. Um, so I started working, uh, with them to improve the program, to improve what we teach. And, uh, we do an educational program for people with drug and alcohol use problems. In other words, it is not treatment. It, the, the point of it is, is that this is decision-making it's decision-making that is wrapped up in a lot of emotion for sure. Um, the feelings of powerlessness are very real for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you approach this decision from a different angle, um, you can choose to move on and move on without recovery, you know, without this sort of lifestyle, the way that like Betty Ford Hazelden um, defines it as involving citizenship and uh, spiritual life and all these things. Like, you know, they sort of stack all of this other stuff onto it. Um, and this idea that it's a constant lifelong battle. Right. So we right. teach people how to kind of like just get perspective, make your decisions, move on. Okay, cool. And Michelle, it sounds like you were at the uh, the place where Stephen went. How, yeah. how did you end up getting on that path? Well, I, I, my dad was one of the people that I, I've been a part of the recovery world since I was about 10 years old. Um, and my dad was a heavy drinker, his whole family, good Irish drunks. And, um, and so I, you know, kind of, I was the oldest. And as I was coming up through, you know, through my life from the age of about 12, I was told if you ever touch a drug or ever drink, you're going to become an addict because, um, you, you have that personality. I was just like my dad. Um, so I think I took on the addict self image, like, I mean, I had my first drink when I was 12 and probably in my first try, I tried pot when I was 12. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't become a regular heavy substance user until I was about seven, 16, 17. Um, and, and I was, you know, whereas it took Stephen going to treatment to descend for me because I was brought up in it. And, you know, my dad was kind of a guru in AA. Mm. Um, so it, AA was our lifestyle as a family. My mom was an Al-Anon. I went to Alateen. I went to ACOA for a little while while I was using myself. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so it was... Um, you know, he, it was ingrained into me that I was a, an addict from birth. So I did, I ended up being a heavy drinker, heavy substance user. And, um, and little did I know, well, I was away doing all that. And at one point I was homeless. I was, you know, couch surfing. Um, my dad had, was starting to do the research. He was a, he was a, a brilliant, you know, software engineer for GE, and he was a researcher 
And um, and during this time period, my grandfather died in DTs, his father, yeah. um, after going in and out of treatment for about 40 years yeah. from, from the time he left World War II until he died in 1986. Um, you know, and he put years together sober but he was convinced alcohol was going to kill him, and it did. Um, and my, at that point, my dad really began to question. You know, he saw that I was ha had a problem. At that point, I was definitely off to the races, and he, um, you know, he was he was really starting to look at things, and he noticed that a lot of people didn't didn't change, and and he started to really question it. And little did I know, he was he started um, a research project. With, uh, it was a bunch of people under the age of 30, mostly men, um, and I became one of only two women who were part of that. And what he told us at the beginning, and I didn't know I was a part of it, I went to him for help when I was 22, and um, and he said, uh, you know, you're, you're not an addict, there's no such thing as an alcoholic, um, you're doing what you think makes you happy. Um, by the looks of you, it doesn't, and he was right, I was suicidal at that point, um, and, and he's like, and he goes, and I'm not an alcoholic. And I was like, well, if you're not an alcoholic, why aren't you drinking? Like, why don't you go back to drinking? And he's like, well, I don't want to. And I was like, well, that sounds like a whole load of crap to me. Um, and because in my mind, I wanted to be like, I, I just wanted to be normal. Mm -hmm. And and I'm like, so you're normal. And he's like, well, and the truth is my dad's not normal. But <laughs> I, I, I call him crazy grandpa. But I, my kids away is crazy um, but uh but I'm not normal either. So um so anyways, he but he told me that but we were going to AA. And um, and the only reason he said we were going to AA was to tell people they could be okay, and that that they didn't have to struggle forever, and um, that they could leave this that whole that it was a temporary problem that 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 heavy substance use could be a temporary problem that you could move on from. But we were doing a lot of the AA stuff, and really, the, initially, my father set out to show what parts of the 12-step program worked. Mm -hmm. And and he joined forces with our, our uh, Stephen and I's other co-author of the book, Mark Sharon. Um, they met at a meeting. Mark was only 19 and has a story similar to mine. Um, and uh, my dad at the time was in his late 40s and he had retired from GE. He was doing his own, he was freelancing, he was doing his own thing. It's like a consultant. Um, and... Uh, and they just started uh, like helping people like it like i'd never seen anybody help people like really the goal was you're going to come you're going to figure out what you want for your life and you're going to move on and um but in the meantime we're going to figure out what works well it took about 12 years mark and my dad lived in the retreat um i got i sobered up in 1990 i volunteered at the retreat throughout the 90s but i had my own career going on um and and with everything that they were doing every part of the 12-step program they were throwing away and i i went to the meetings for seven years i probably sponsored 100 more or more women um i was like i i was like oh do we really want to throw that away but I, it, they had to convince like i had to look at the research and really see well if we do this more people are getting better, or more people are getting well, if to put lack of a better term. If we do this, less people are. So with each little component that we threw away, it was hard for me. I, I 
I was pretty invested in the 12 step program. Right. Uh, but, but I'm a researcher at heart too. I am just like my dad and I couldn't deny the numbers. Um, and the more people we helped, um, the more we learned. Hmm. And so in 2016, um, Stephen and Mark were writing the Freedom Model. We didn't know that's what it was. It was the 14th edition of our program. Um, 20, they actually were writing it in 2014, 2015. <laughs> I, I initially sent it back because I was like, oh, we can't use this. <laughs> they were not happy with me. <laughs> but the, but it, it really, they got the idea that we're going to take every myth, and like one by one, and we're going to debunk each myth and Stephen is our like researcher extraordinaire. He would he would scour, you know, every library in the world, uh, you know, to to find to find data to figure out exactly, you know. And when, when we learn that most people, literally most people that qualify as addicted, overcome the problem. If you want to say overcome, I don't even like that word. But they get they change um, and become not addicted when we we learned that and most people don't go to treatment we thought all right let's study those people mm. how do those people change mm. you know and there was this idea within in aa that oh then you weren't a real alcoholic you weren't a real addict it's like no these people these people qualified you know i mean at 22 i went through i went through withdrawal for alcohol i was drinking that much you know and today you know, I did, I was abstinent 20 years, and and then I learned that most people that once qualified as alcoholic are a little more than 50% moderate successfully. Mm. And I and I'm like, if I'm teaching people that, I got to know that it's true. Mm. Um. So about 10 years ago, I was like, all right, I'm gonna see what what how this works. Um. And for 10 years, I drink occasionally, and I don't have an issue. Mm. Um. You know. So so my goal is, and and I know that's not for everybody. But my goal is that anybody that makes the choice to abstain is doing it because they believe they're going to be happier, not because they're afraid. And that's the goal of the freedom model. We don't, you know, I didn't, my, my husband and I both were ex-addicts. You know, my kids don't have a, I have, you know, my kids are all in their mid twenties. Mm. They don't have an issue, but they were raised to know that, that substances have no power and, and that you're always in control. So, so, you know, education that kind of education works yeah so that's sorry <laughs> no that's great um go ahead do you have something i was just going to ask you said your dad started doing um you know research when this all started what like what did that entail what kind of research was he doing what that made you part of it it was, was ob it was um observational um a blind study it was a you know um where where he was he was why, like we had like three home groups like that he went three groups he went to consistently every week and and he was keeping track of about 40 people um and that were he you know some people were the control group people that were not working with him but that were working with a friend of his mm -hmm. um who were getting the traditional AA message and then there were people that were working with him and his little group where they were getting the message you're you're not a, you're not an addict you know no labeling yet you struggled with a temporary behavior problem i'm going to show you how you can move on move past it um his group that 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 he used 75 percent at the end of one year were sober and drug free the control group zero hmm. zero were sober and drug free and these are people all under the age of 30. so his biggest concern was 
you know, the biggest group of people that are coming into the 12-step program are under 30 years old. They're young people. Mm -hmm. and, and why isn't the, the AA message working for them? Um, and, um, and out of that control group, a few of them were dead at the end of one year. So, you know, this is a pretty serious issue to look at. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, I, I, when I, when I was 22, if I thought that I was going to have to sit in those meetings the rest of my life, there is no way in hell it would have kept going. Mm -hmm. There was no way. Yeah. Um, you know, and for women, for young women in a 12 step program, it's, it's pretty unpleasant. Mm. It's it's uh, and it's pretty dangerous, um, especially depending on the meetings you went to. Mm. So if if I am a uh, new new person that's being introduced to your guys's model, wh what does that look like? And this could be for the both of you. What does what does that look like? Do I go to your retreat? Do I start reading the book? Uh, I mean, like what what is the um, the beginning parts of being a new person that is wanting to get over my drug or alcohol problem look like? The, the first thing would be to just get the book and take a look at it. You know, um, there's studies of what they call bibliotherapy. <laughs> they'll, they'll rename anything a therapy, um, yeah. which is, you know, just giving people um, written materials. And that's been shown to have as good an effect as, um, going for treatment, going for counseling, meetings, all of this, right? Mm -hmm. um, so so reading a book, if you're motivated to do it, is um, a solid way to uh, to get started, right? And to see if, see if that's for you. But not everybody's willing to do it. Sometimes the chaos, there's too much, so much chaos in their life. That's why coming to our retreat is, you know, a good thing. And that's why that's probably the main benefit that people get out of going to any, um, if they, if they go to an inpatient center is to just like stop the chaos for a few weeks. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but, um, but yeah, we recommend you start with the book and that you read it there. Um, and if, if you need more intense help, we have the retreat or we have, you know, we teach the classes online as well. Both Michelle and I do that. Um, but as far as, but yeah, I mean, so that's, that's like the, the services, um, I guess, but to get into what we're, well, do you want to get into what we teach or? Yeah. yeah. Or, uh, well, one thing I was going to just ask again is that the book is the freedom model of addiction. Uh, is that the name that you guys, that would be yeah. your book that you would the be recommending? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I just want to. I wanted to add to what Steve said, because um, we do a lot of work online, like on social media. We There's a lot of leaving AA groups and, and different groups of people that are looking for an alternative. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I engage frequently with those people. They, we have um, a whole ton of podcasts. We actually do lessons in our podcasts um, that's on our website. So people can start there if they don't want to read. We have uh, free eBooks that we send that I send over social media all the time. Um, and we have we have a YouTube channel. We have video lessons there as well. Cool. Um, so so we do have a lot of different options for people that are actually where they can really um, and begin to to kind of get into it without the book. And we are going to have an audio book because we've had a ton of um, we're in the process now of just just starting you know to get that set up. Absolutely. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so then getting into what you guys teach. 
like we were talking about. So I've got the book, I've read the book, I can identify or, you know, I can relate or it's something I'm interested in. What then would be taking place? What if I'm going to take the classes with you? What does that look like? Well, you know, first of all, we get a lot of we get a lot of contact emails uh, from people that have read the book and they just start enacting that in their life, you know, and and so, you know, if you're really on board with it, you probably don't need to talk to us, (laughs) you know, Um, which would be great. Solve it for uh, the price of a book. (laughs) That'd be really good. Um, But um, because the classes, we're going to be taking you through the book, you know, and, but what you're going to learn um, throughout that program is first, if you have, if you're stuck in these myths of sort of addiction, um, is to undo those myths, right? Like the idea of loss of control, and we have a whole chapter on that. Um, it's actually in the pen, in the appendices of the book, where you know you can really analyze the research. We or we analyze it for you and present it to you. But mm-hmm. The research on what they call priming dose studies, which is where, in some cases, they've snuck people. They've snuck heavy, you know, alcoholics, um, uh, a dose of alcohol without them knowing. And, and you know, they measure their craving or, you know, set up behavioral experiments where they offer people to limit their drinking uh, in, in favor of, you know, other rewards. Like there's one with a hospital setup where they got these um, people with very bad drinking problems off the streets of Baltimore and they had them living in a hospital ward. And they said, you can have at least 10, you can have uh, a maximum of 10 ounces of alcohol a day, but you know, your hangout is like this empty white room (laughs) with like a folding chair. right? Right. Or if you um, if you limit on any day that you limit yourself to four and a half ounces, you get to spend the day the next day um, in the in this other room where there's a pool table, a TV, and comfy couches. But it's like as long as you want to stay there, you only get four and a half ounces. And you would see like people would limit their drinking; mm-hmm. they would move over, you know. So to get to that nice room, and it shows that there is no genuine biological loss control and there's similar studies with with um with cocaine and methamphetamine and and crack and so you know we would explain you know we would like dig into that myth because for a lot of people um that leads them to binge use right and it increases the sense of loss of control believing that once i start i can't stop right and um you know, and then it sort of reveals like the game of the treatment world, which is, you know, the treatment world are people who are paid to scare uh, people's husbands, wives, and children into deciding on abstinence, right? Mm-hmm. And the way that they that they support that, the way that they carry that out, is to present substance use as all or nothing. Either you're going to go off the rails and die doing it, or you're going to abstain. And they try to make it into a no-brainer. And so people haven't arrived at the choice to abstain, which can be a wonderful choice and a happy choice. They haven't arrived there through um, 
pursuit of happiness, they've arrived there through fear. And that's what the treatment world does to people. So a lot of people are stuck in that mindset and they're stuck on the goal of abstinence and they're stuck on the, and so their approach is, okay, yes, I accept that I have to stop. Now show me how to force myself to not do what I want to do. And that is a miserable, miserable existence hanging on every day, trying to say no to yourself. Um, so, uh, there's a lot of like undoing of that mindset that people have learned through this sort of treatment world. And so we would dig into all of those myths and say like, let's undo those. And then we can get to this place where we say, all right, now that you know you're not out of control, that it's not a brain disease, right? That, that this isn't an involuntary behavior in any way, Depression doesn't force you to use. 80% of people with depression don't have drug and alcohol use problems. None of these things are forcing you to use. Now that you understand that, we got to accept this. You're motivated to use by the benefits that you see in the drug. And let's identify that. Let's discuss all those benefits, right? And now let's question those benefits. Let's dig in to what we call the drug drug set setting model, which is not something we invented. It's something that's been around since like the 60s. And that's the idea that a lot of the effects that you think you get from the drug don't actually come from the pharmacology of the drug. They come from your mindset, the expectancies you have, the learned re reactions you have to the drug, the setting that you're in. And that's a whole ball of wax to get into. And we take you through like four chapters that hit every sort of all the big ones. We, we introduce the theory, the bigger theory to say, hey, maybe, you're, maybe you don't need the drug to achieve these things. And then we tackle relief, you know, using for stress relief, anger relief, depression relief. Does it really take away those things, right? We aim at uh, liquid courage, right? Do you really need the drug to be somebody else? Right? Do you need it to speak your mind? Do you need it to be suave and whatever else, right? Where people think that it gives them these sort of special powers, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's such, it's such a common belief in our culture. And then we look at pleasure. And, you know, and I was just watching this sort of drug war porn series on Netflix the other night. And, and they were showing uh, people using fentanyl and in Boston on the streets, uh, people that are very down and out. And I hear the girl saying, you know, once you have this, it's the best feeling on earth and you're just going to chase that for the rest of your life. And I believe that about heroin, you know, and people say those things thinking they're going to scare people away from ever trying. But once you've tried it and if people promote those beliefs and you believe it, you think, well, this is the most pleasurable thing on earth. I'd rather die than live without it. Yeah, you know, so um, so we question pleasure. We we look into where does pleasure come from? How how important is the drug to achieving the pleasure? And you know, so we 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 question everything you think you're getting out of the drugs because if if you start to realize, oh yeah, I, I'm really not getting that stuff so much, um, and really can't achieve fully the pleasure and stress relief and lowered inhibitions that I want from the drug, 
Um, uh, once, you, once you start to realize that, your motivation comes down to use, right? But still, your motivation could be down here. And if you don't see any other better option for how to get through your days and, and, and feel some joy and, and deal with things, then you're still, you're still going to want to use, you know? Mm -hmm. So then we sort of move on to let's look at the flip side. What, what are the, so we, we, we move them into um, analyzing their three substance use options, which is to just continue using heavily as is to moderate in some way. Um, and that's a, that's, Moderation is such a widely uh, there, there's so many forms of moderation, right? But but that's that's another option. And to abstain, what are the upsides and benefits? Not what is bad about my current habit. You know that you've known it for years. Everybody hammers you with what's bad about it, and yet it doesn't stop you, right? So let's move into thinking about like imagining one of these other options as being better right mm -hmm. and and so if if you can sort of build up the motivation for one of those other options it becomes easy to follow through on you know but you know i i'm obviously not i know i went in depth i'm not covering everything but there's a lot more myths along the way there's all these sort of like people stick to these like same old strategies that are just so deeply embedded in our culture at this point um and we like we spend a lot of time through the book trying to sort of like get them out of all of those habits of, of thinking of strategies they want to employ. Um, like, well, I'm just going to go replace, you know, getting high with going to the gym, you know, and, and, you know, it's like, okay. Um, I was a heavy substance user that, that was at the gym four hours a day. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like so we're trying to like get past all that and say, question what you're getting out of this. And if you can get more out of change, mm. you know, and, and, and once that's, once you're convinced of that, you know, it's just like, all right, make your decisions and move on. And, and really what we're trying to do is, once you get, when you have people that are more deeply embedded in this, this sort of recovery mindset that, that I have this disease that's going to push me to use forever, they need a lot of undoing of all those myths. And we're trying to teach them to let go of the addict identity, you know, so that let's say, you know, you read the book, you quit for a while, and then you go out and you get drunk for a night. What do you do at that point? If you think yourself an addict, right? You're looking I'm at it. Then I'm off and running, right? Then, then I'm off and running. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and you think I better get help. Oh, my God, I got to be strong. You know, and it's like, no, you can just get up the next day and say, okay, wait a minute. How good was that? Um, is it something I want to do? How often do I want to do that? If I drink again, do I want it to be less? Do I want to drink at all? You know what I mean? Like, it's mm -hmm. it, it, like just like bring down the panic level from I better run right back to treatment and and just make it a, be able to look at a night of drunkenness like the average person looks at it, which is either like, whoa, that was a crazy night or wow, I'm not going to drink that much again. Or, you know, it's the average person. It's there's, you know, I live in New York. Um, I've got a lot of friends that go out and get very drunk. And it, it's it's not the end of the world that they do that, you know what I mean? And the, they'll 
just they they get up and move along it doesn't haunt them for the rest of the week um they don't think themselves alcoholics or addicts and that's why and so we're trying you know we're trying to get people out of that mindset um because we realize um while we take somebody through this book uh, they may not figure out totally what they want you know um you can't force it we can't we can't force anybody to stop wanting drugs um and or alcohol so we got to give them the, the the sort of means by which to um to approach it like they would anything else in life mm. we we're really trying to show people how to stop treating this as a a special problem that requires a lot of work it's hard it's a little bit harder i know i'm going on so i'll, I'll throw it back to you guys or michelle go ahead uh i was curious as to how many like you have a number of people that say a certain percentage that opt for moderation over abstinence altogether or do you sometimes do, do you ever have people that are like hey i think moderation sounds like the better idea for me i don't i would prefer not to live without these things and then maybe after that's not working out for them they decide that abstinence is something that's going to be more up their alley or is it just completely dependent on on an individual basis like what what do you see when you know people make up their mind on what they want to give a try to i think most of the time they don't entirely make up their mind while they're at the retreat oh. or while they're and, and when we teach people online like we i i use zoom for my classes and i know steven uses skype um a lot of times they're actively using and they're 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 you know and and we'll see like with all almost all of my students make an adjustment in their substance use almost within the first one or two classes like they they will cut it back significantly um and they know we won't do class if they're intoxicated because it's a waste of time yeah. um you know but if they're like obviously intoxicated mm -hmm. so so but i think i don't know it, it, Stevens taught more of those classes than I have, but that's been my experience. Um, but at the retreat, I think, I mean, we have data from, you know, that has gone back to, since we began that shows that about 60 people choose abstinence. 60%. Um, 60 percent, okay. 60 people, 60 percent use abstinence okay. and like 40 percent are were, were classified in our using category. But we, you know, when we kind of followed that a little bit deeper, we delved a little bit deeper, they were people that were like half of those, maybe 20 percent of them were people that, you know, may have come through for heroin and they're like, I can't be considered abstinent because I drink occasionally. And so they would truly be successful in moderating their substance use to non-problematic levels. I don't even like the term moderating because it, it's so loaded. Mm. I, you know, we use adjusted substance use, you know, um, non-problematic substance use. Um, and, and so, so it's, you know, I think it's probably a little bit more now that we, we, I mean, this was, there's a period of time where you're in abstinence only, um, that's all we measured. Um, mm. and for the last probably 10 years, we've we've allowed because we saw that people were doing it so we were like we've got to incorporate that you know the, the people can moderate they can reduce their substance use and they can move on as if they've never had a problem mm -hmm. and so we had to allow for that um and because we saw that it was happening anyways and uh, speak to it honestly right yeah. because 
there's an impulse when you're working in a field, you know, to, well, like, what if this person can't? Is it, is it like, yeah. isn't it better to just not mention it? And, and the fact is there's been several, uh, as, there's a lot of information on moderating alcohol. There's been several big epidemiological surveys that found that about half of people who resolve their, their drinking problems um, become moderate drinkers, you know? So mm-hmm. we, we have to say that, you know? Uh, the, the, the moderation question, though, um, people make it into a question of like whether you can or can't do i have the ability or not and we're like look everybody has the ability you might not right. have a moderate desire exactly. and, and and figuring that out is, is is really it's like if you're leaning on a drug to give you something you lack you know like you 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 think you needed to get through the days and you're like all right i'm just going to get this thing that i lack uh, a couple days a week um <laughs> Right, you're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. You know what I mean? It's you're you're probably going to use heavily, but so we um, we have not done a follow up yet that 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 um, measures yeah. the rate of mod- successful you know sort of moderation um, amongst uh, people who've taken our course. So that is something we have yet to do, but. I've seen it firsthand, and that was one of the most amazing things about when we started teaching this in an office here in the city and over Skype. It's very different than teaching it in a retreat setting. When people go away, they're they're not allowed to drink there or to use any substances. And so, you know, you it's it's a different thing because when you're doing sort of, you know, outpatient. Um, it's like you're, you're, you're going to get people who are still in the midst of it. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I started to see, like Michelle said, some people within the first few classes moderate. And that was one big thing that had made us bring it into this more, um, because, you know, and we weren't teaching them how to moderate or anything like that. We were just teaching them, you know, there's no such thing as loss of control in this disease. You got to figure out what makes you happier. And like, sort of almost on some of that message, people were instantly just being like, all right, I'm drinking less. Mm. How the heck did that happen? I don't know how it happened. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, it's just, they had to know that it was a possibility. Um, So I'm not sure, I'm not sure what percentage aim for moderation or abstinence. Do do you guys have a plan or to maybe do a study or follow up on the people that have elected to moderate? I, we, I do. I would like to yeah. um, do uh, it's, it's it right now for us, it's cost prohibitive because, because we have, we pay an outside organization. Right. We got to pay them no matter what they find. So I really want to get, I want the freedom model to be out um, for a long enough period of time, we've downsized significantly. Mm. We went from helping about 400 plus people a year at our retreats to now we're probably about 60, 70 people a year. Okay. Um, so I want to get a big enough data size with the Freedom Model, which we it's been about two years. Right. Uh, 
So maybe we'll go about two more years and, and hopefully be in a financial position where we can get this research organization, which is local to us here, um, university here to, to do a follow-up study. And where our other measure was binary, like sober, not sober, we're gonna have to do something that really nobody's done. Like nobody does follow-ups on their treatment anyways. Right. But we're gonna nobody's done, which is have some kind of a non-binary measure of what classifies as non-problematic substance use and problematic substance use mm -hmm. um, and, and see, you know, and for us, we don't just talk to the, we don't have the research organization talk to the individual and do an interview with them. They have to do a second interview with a corroborating witness who's oh. usually the person that, that got them here, you know? So, um, so that's, we do want to do that. I wish yeah. there was some way we could like measure everybody that's read our book. Cause it's thousands of people now yeah. and we get emails and letters and, uh, people seek us out on social media to tell us it changed my life. Yeah. So, you know, which is really nice actually. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the, those follow-ups are a lot of work too. For yeah. the first 12 years, Mark yeah, we, <laughs> was following up with everybody that went to the retreat and their corroborator oh. every six months. Wow. And that, six that months. Be, it started to take up so much time yeah, that it <laughs> yeah. staggered them further. And, yep. um, and that was when they started doing it. And then they decided, all right, we'll do random pull of the records with this outside organization and go like that because it got to be thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. So, wow. but it's, it is a lot of work and we're not uh, equipped to do it at this moment. And no. I do we're agree with you that we, we now need a bigger group if we're going to, if we're going to go specifically off this version of, of the uh, program text uh right. we need to wait another year or two yeah yeah cool if uh somebody's interested in in um being part of the retreat how long of how long is their stay with you guys and my other question is do you guys have to medically detox folks because i know i spent oh six terrible days in a in a mm. detox facility coming off of um, a lot of Opana and some Suboxone, and it was just, uh, I thought I at one point gave birth to an alien or something. It was really, <laughs> it, was an, it was such an unpleasant experience. Uh, but uh, so do you guys, do you guys have to medically detox people when they arrive at your facility? Uh, and like, and then how long, how long does it, how long are they there to sort of get their system cleaned out and then, and then take part in your program? Well, we we work with a couple different detoxes. We have a local detox that's wonderful for alcohol only, mm -hmm. um, and um, but really, uh, the, we recently had an experience with a guest who came in who was detoxing off Suboxone and benzos, mm -hmm. and this poor guy. He didn't want to go to detox. He refused. We were like, we recommend you go to medical detox. He didn't want to do it. And he spent a good two weeks hallucinating. Mm. Um, yeah. And we were like, every day, we really need you to go get evaluated. So when we finally, Stephen took him to a local place. The, the local place did alcohol because we're like it's benzos and you know yeah. and then they didn't want him and then we took him to another local place that's supposed to be good for bed like like opiates and benzos and they wanted to put him on suboxone again we're like he's trying to get off suboxone yeah. 
Yeah. Well, he was already really detoxed from yeah. the Suboxone. It was, it was just the withdrawals he was really getting were from all those. the Xanax. Yeah. And, and I was sitting with the nurses, and I was like, can you do something for benzo withdrawal? And they are like, yeah, uh, Suboxone. The World Health Organization uh. says don't give... Um, suboxone to people who have benzo problems. Right. I, this is, you know, really a, a side note, but I, I've had clients that worked in, uh, that were nurses that worked in facilities and, and psychologists that worked in facilities. And they were telling me that they prescribed suboxone all day long for people with meth problems. Mm. Gambling problems, I've heard. Yeah, I didn't believe it until I saw it. I was like, oh my God. Wow. They're, um, and they're like, well, it reduces cravings. And it's like, <laughs> um, no, it, re- it, it reduces withdrawal from opioids. And in itself, then you could say it reduces, as a secondary effect, some, some opioid cravings. But it doesn't just reduce craving. A, a, a craving is a complex you know, thought process of believing that you need a substance to achieve something. It it is boggling my mind how people think that that's the cure for everything right now. (laughs) I know, I know. It's really odd. But so we don't do detox. We recommend anybody gets it before they come to us if they think they need it. Gotcha. Um, The situation with this last guy was pretty sad because... Um, you know, he was saying he was fine and whatever, and, and this just started to be where he wasn't. And then as we tried to get him help, nobody would help him mm-hmm. with that. And it, was, it was unbelievable. Gosh. That hurts me because I've always said the one thing that the medical system, that doctors really can do for you with a drug problem is detox you. Right. They've got that down pat. They know how to do it. But nobody wants to give this service anymore. You know, and everybody, That's all the activists in the, in the, you know, propping up the Suboxone right now are convincing everybody that's actually, they, they're saying it's irresponsible to detox somebody fully oh. from mm-hmm. opioids because then they'll run out and overdose and, and because they'll take as much as they used to take. And, and, and my response is, you know, first thing, well, educate them mm-hmm. about do not go if you're going to use. Don't take the same dose you were taking for you know. And like yeah. let's educate them about that if if that's what's happening. Um, if they want to be on it long term, fine. But but their um, this activism right now in that space is making it so you can't even obtain detoxification mm-hmm. when you're when you're ready to do it and when you are ready to do it. You know, when you, it's the problem is detox when people aren't ready to do it. Right. Better to let them keep using, right? You know, um, absolutely. But if you're ready, you want it. We should. Why don't don't we support people in that and support them and say, like, yeah, you can do it this time? Yep. Yeah. True that. Yeah. We we do have there's a we do have a wonderful detox we work with but they're in Arizona, mm-hmm. um, and we do have uh, the detox we got this young man into uh, was in New Jersey and and we've worked with them in the past and he had a good experience there he was there six days and he came to us a different person mm-hmm. and now I need to tell you what he told me yesterday in class that was first of all while he was at this 
at this detox in New Jersey, there was a client there that was like talking to him about a Xanax habit. And he goes, oh, you're in for a rude awakening. You are going to be going for eight months. You're not, you're going to feel like shit the whole time, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, I know a good doctor down in West Palm Beach that mm. you should go to. Oh and I was like, this is one of those poachers. This is one of one of these recruiters. Mm, yeah. yeah. Clearly. Right. But but mm. when when Mike and I were talking about it yesterday, he says, he says, I feel fine now. What is he talking about? You're in for rude way. It's now been over two weeks since he went to the detox, mm-hmm. right? And he feels fine. He yeah. does not feel He's like a different person. But he, yeah, he he is feeling so great. All the energy is coming back. And you know, it's really sad when they convince people, well, you're gonna have a post-acute withdrawal syndrome for two years. Yeah. They're like, oh, I'm gonna be miserable and feel like crap for two years. Screw it. I'll keep I'm gonna you. go get high. That's right. right. It's very sad to give people these expectations. Mm. Um but uh but anyways, uh yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's what we do for detox. We, 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 right. we refer you out. You know, we, yep. we can't deal with it. We get you there. Absolutely. Like we provide the transportation, all of that. Oh, cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was going to switch gears a little. I was going to ask you, I would imagine you guys get some pushback or people that, because you guys have, I don't want to say non-conventional, but for lesser yeah. terms, a non-conventional mm-hmm. approach to recovery from what you know, the, the norm is of either a 12 step program or complete abstinence. What, what's that like? What's it like to deal with pushback? Do you get a lot of it? Is it, uh, do you just turn the other cheek or (laughs) gotta look at Steven. Steven has a website himself, a blog site. And, uh, and yeah, he, (laughs) I get so much hate mail. I can only imagine comments. Yeah. They'll put a comment on a blog and you have to, you know, in the comment field, you got to put a, email address and they'll say their email address is fuck you and you're killing people that <laughs> oh my god yeah yeah god. you get accused of um we get accused of uh misleading people to make a buck you mm. know yes. and the thing is we ain't rich at all we're not we are far from it. you see what our financial situations are it's not good um, it's you know, it's just like we really genuinely believe in what we do, and um, and and people think uh, people think we're doing it to score money, and it you know it does cost. We are you know our price is comparable to going to like a lot of inpatient places. Right. People might look at that price tag and say like, oh, you're, you you know you're raking it in. Um, it. It's not about that. That's insulting to me when people say, you know, you're doing this for the money. Mm. Um, but you know, we get all these we get all these people that sort of demand, you know, oh, how dare you say this? You have and the worst part is, I think, that people. Well, first of all, we have a non twelve step view, and people think we hate the twelve steps or that we hate people in the mm-hmm. twelve steps. And we don't. We don't. We've both been there. We know that there's you meet a lot of wonderful people yeah. um, we disagree with the ideas mm-hmm. greatly but the uh, you know there's some you know and people think oh well the rehab industry is all about the money and 
you know, like that's that's low hanging fruit to say that we don't think, you know, there's some administrators and top level business people for whom that is the case. Mm -hmm. But you got like 99 percent of the people working in that industry. They um, want to help people. They want to help people, right. honestly. And so so people come in. So why do you hate everybody? We, you know, and we don't hate them, you know, or, you know, they, they I don't know. It's it, it's weird. There's a lot of like crazy accusations thrown at us with this. And um, I don't know. It's not nice, but it's constant. And um, and you and you get uh, immune to it mm -hmm. after a certain while. And a, a lot of it becomes funny. Some of it is sad. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, I, I had somebody on one of my blogs went on and on about how you know, full of it I am for, for, for saying, you know, this disease model method, um, doesn't work. And, you know, for, you know, most people, because, you know, it doesn't work beyond doing nothing. That doesn't mean, you know, but doesn't mean people don't get well while doing it. They do, but, you know, he's going on and on and on about how wrong I am about my portrayal of substance use problems and how, 12 steps work and rehab works. And he tells a story about, I've been going to rehabs in AA for 15 years <laughs> and I kept relapsing and relapsing and relapsing. And now I'm been sober for two years. It works. And it's like that, those are the things that become, it's both sad and laughable because it's like, do you see what you just wrote? Mm. Right. And trying this one method for 13 years before you finally stopped. Right. You know, and, and, the and what made you finally stop, right? Yeah. What made you finally stop? It was deciding, I'm, I think I'm done with this. I think you'd be happier doing something else. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, Which is exactly and what I, we talk about in the book. Hmm. Yeah. This, this, this guy, too, I don't even remember what his substance use problem was, but the median length of an alcohol problem is 14 years. The median length of a heroin, uh, opioid problem is. Is five years. Uh, it's like something like seven or nine years for marijuana, six years for cocaine. Uh, you know all these things. Like you, you got to thirteen years and you finally quit. You know, if if it's one of the drugs, maybe you were delayed in reaching that point by your involvement in treatment. You know, if it, you know, if it's alcohol, well, then it's a toss up. Chances are half and 50-50 you would have quit by that point with or without treatment. So Yeah. Is there sorry, I'm asking a lot of questions. Go ahead, bro. One. I was yeah. just gonna say, is there um any common ground at all with the twelve step world? Like I know it sounds like kinda at the origins of your guys's thing came from a your your dad in the 12-step world and then you guys were kind of peeling layers off is there anything that overlaps at all whether it's um you know trying to be useful to other people or is there anything that is common or are you guys on complete polar opposites now um i think I, the way mark usually puts it when we're doing interviews is everything that goes downstream of powerlessness is useless um, because you, when you start with the first premise, which is reminding yourself every day that you're powerless, um, that, that really taints 
the rest of the program. So no, like I would say that, no, we don't have any common ground at this point mm -hmm. other than I do genuinely believe that the goal of most people in AA is to help people. Right. Um, you know, and so if our common ground is anything, it's that, you know, we both want the same results. Mm -hmm. um, we just have different, different ways of going about it. And um, like, certainly, um, you know, if you feel it's useful to you to have a spiritual life, you feel it's useful to you in your, in your happiness level or whatever, then you should do it. Um, but we really did find out that a lot of that stuff, um, you know, a, the character defects and all that is, is I believe, harmful. Um, most people that come into to treatment and stuff already feel like big pieces of crap. Mm. Um, and to reinforce that you're a big piece of crap over and over again is, is pretty damaging. Um, you know, and, and then be selfless, which I took to an extreme. Um, and really, even long after I left AA, I was a doormat for a lot of people uh, because I, I was this big piece of crap that needed to be treated badly. Um, and, and that did not help my happiness level. Mm. I mean, I stayed sober, but yeah. it, you know, I, I, I did not help with my happiness level. Um, so, so yeah, I think probably the only thing you don't need every, you don't need God, you know, the data shows you don't need God to change your life. Um, not that I, I'm Catholic. I go to church. I am a believer, but I, you know, I, God already gave me everything I needed. And, you know, I have free will, um, to be able to, to change my substance use habit. Um, you don't, you don't need to be selfless. I know a plenty of selfish, obnoxious people who stayed sober <laughs> for long periods of time. Um, you know, so that's definitely not needed. Yeah. And, and you definitely don't need to recruit people. <laughs> like, like that whole model was about building the program. It was about recruiting people. Hmm. Um, there's a, there's, as far as, you know, whether you have to live out the sort of program or not, there's a lot of research from the 70s, uh, the 60s and the 70s, yes. uh, where they studied dry drunk syndrome, you know, being a like some formal definition of what dry drunks are. And they found that um, most people who succeeded in uh, recovery qualified as dry drunks and they maintained... <laughs> They maintain sobriety <laughs> for, you know, forever. You know, going up to looking at twenty years. As far you know, is like they they, as far as they were looking, they were surviving it. You know, they weren't you know sort of relapsing. And they also found that people who made all kinds of um, uh, psychological uh, progress with their anxiety and depression, these kind of things, they had no more higher rate of success than the people that didn't. Uh, um, right. something you just said inspired me about that. I forget what it was, but oh, no. <laughs> like personally, as far as any agreements with AA, personally, I found their, you know, resentment stuff helpful in my mm. own life. It was a big, uh, wake up to say, oh, wait, I don't have to sit around ruminating about bad things that have happened and mm. actually learning that lesson gave me so much power over uh, the rest of my mental life. And, and you know, because it, it was, I learned, you know, I don't have to think these things, which was really cool. And, you know, I do like the the prayer about 
change, you know, accept things you can, you, you can't change and change things you can't. Mm. Uh, personally, I, I think those are nice things. Cool. I would like, so Kyle, or I'm not going to speak for Kyle, but, you know, my base is in the 12 steps and I sort of keep that as my foundation, but my journey actually started with, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Ibogaine, but um, going down and having an Ibogaine experience and then doing DMT. And uh, Kyle and I know have both been a, benefited from doing a EMDR trauma therapy. And it's like this, uh, I don't know, I just have this whole big thing of experience that I can draw on, off of. And I was wondering about the... Um, uh, the freedom model is it? Is it just in court? Is it just that's all encompassing for what you do, or do you guys ever draw from, you know, the traditional treatment? Or I mean, I'm sorry, the tr traditional therapy programs. Or we had another friend. What 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 was the thing she did where she watched the video? Do you remember what that was called? Anyway, some other some mm -hmm. other you know uh, therapy techniques. Do you guys delve into any of that of the like out of the mental health profession or is it just the program that you guys have created and, and you guys have re revised this a bunch is that right or yeah it? we we had 13 editions of okay. our program and then we just wrote the sort of newest we we switched it over to the freedom models because it was rewritten from the ground up instead of being a revision i mean but it's still sort of a new edition of the old one okay but um we don't do any therapy. Um, we don't do any such thing. And we say, if you need that stuff, go get it. Mm. But we try to teach people to sort of disconnect their, um, their other emotional problems and life problems from the substance use with sort of the question of, you know, is this, is the substance use really going to help you with that? You know, because what we see a lot of the time is that, um, you know, as people try to like some people, for some people, the approach is like, let me eradicate and avoid every source of stress in my life so that I'm not triggered to use. And it's like, that's an impossible game. Yes. Right. You know? yes. And so if, if you keep the belief alive that stress is going to make me use, then you're going to end up using, you know? Correct. So, so we focus on that. Like, let's make sure you don't, um, sort of create triggers with the sort of mental health <laughs> stuff. But at the same time, if you if you think you need any help with any of those problems, go get it. Just don't go get it under the belief that right. everything has to be resolved and perfect for me to quit. Yeah. Right. If you don't see it as a solution, it doesn't have to be something you go to. Um, but with that said, we pulled quotes from a lot of people in the sort of CBT school of psychology, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And explained some of that to people. Um, just like to show them you have control on on this mental level of how you feel and really whether you're going to crave or not you know it all applies right over to whether you're going to crave or not you sit there building the substance up as your life solution and you're going to want it you know and so so we pull from a lot of those psychologists we pull from a lot of um research in that area and we present the facts to people, but we, we're not going to do any kind of therapy with them. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that happens um, is we get a lot of people that have been to two or more treatment programs. The majority of people that come to us have been to two or more treatment programs. And a lot of times they're dual diagnosed. Um, I was dual diagnosed um, when I was young as bipolar and, uh, you know, when a 
addict. So, so what happens is in these treatment programs, they tie their the, the the substance use to the mental health issue, and so now what you have is this freaking big what I call I say in my class is a big rubber band ball mess where um, where we have to then pick it apart because you're not going to, I mean, it's a circular thing where, um, you know, if he's feeling depressed, you're going to drink and then the drink makes you feel more depressed. And then you're, you're going down this spiral. And so what we, what we do as we pick it apart is we show the data. We have about a, a few chapters dedicated to showing people that they don't have to tie these two, two things together and that they have a better chance of solving both problems if they're not tied together. Um, and and my background is in psychology. Um, so where I'm, I'm on the research side of things, not so much the clinical side of things, but I kind of ended up there, you know? So, so I, you know, with the, that's what we see is, you know, the majority of people with mental health problems don't have substance use problems and vice versa, mm -hmm. you know, but now, now almost everybody that goes to treatment is diagnosed with something. Um, and, and so it, it really becomes more important for us to show them certainly feeling depressed can be a reason for using, but it's absolutely not causal. Mm -hmm. Um, everybody experiences trauma, every single person. So it's going to happen in your life. It does not have to be a cause for your use, nor where does it have to be a reason if you don't want it to be? Mm -hmm. So that's how we deal with that. But yes, we don't discourage people from any other kind of therapies that they want to do. Uh, can I ask Aaron, uh, did you find the, the Ibogaine experience uh, useful? What was that like? Yeah, I did. Um, it was useful and that it... Uh, uh, Sorry about that. Silly computer. <laughs> um, in that... Um, First of all, I got rid of like 90% of my withdrawal symptoms. So like the only thing I was really left with is just the insomnia. I got to um, go past the rest of that. But then also, and, and uh, yeah, and the, the um, I don't know, the, 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 the doctor that was down there, that the American doctor, because I had to do it in Mexico, that I was talking to, said it worked on so many different parts of the brain that they weren't, you know, exactly sure about all of them. But I felt like, uh, I felt that I got a reboot, basically. Uh, in my brain and, and, it, and it got the brain producing serotonin and dopamine again uh, and sort of regulated that. And um, yeah, I, I, I really, what's that? Did you feel like you gained insight? Cause that's what yeah. I hear from a lot of yeah, people. Yeah. So that's sort of what I was hoping for. And I don't really remember much of it. And it was 14 <laughs> hours of uncomfortableness. It was not, uh, it was not a pleasant experience. It's not like, um, it's not like, it's not like taking mushrooms or acid and partying. It's not, it's not that kind of a psychedelic. And, uh, and, uh, the only thing, the only insight that I'd remembered from it was, was like, so basically when I was tripping, it was like, I was sitting there watching a sitcom. And so the sitcom, sitcom would have say six, um, plot points that would make up the episode. And then the first three would happen. And then I would automatically know what the last three were going to be. But then I realized that, that was because I was making the whole thing up in my brain. And so they took it as the symbolism of, you know, like, um, sort of intention setting and goal setting and knowing what yeah. the outcome is going to be because I'm the one that's creating that outcome, if that makes any sense. That's a great insight. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I, um, yeah, I, I'm glad it's part of my story for sure. Cool.
Yeah, that is. That's good information. Well, I think we're about an hour in. I'm thinking, um, Aaron, do you have any other questions before we wrap up? No, no? I don't think so. I just, you know, like, um, I just want to thank you guys for sitting down with us today and, and talking with us. Um, you know, like Kyle said at the beginning of the podcast when we were started up, you know, Kyle and I is base is the 12 steps and that's how we got well. But uh, it's it's important for us to be open minded. And uh, I don't have the answers about anything. And like, you know, there were some people that were pretty close minded about my, um, you know, psychedelic trip to start my experience. Yeah. And, and, and it's, you know, proved invaluable. And and, uh, you know, so I just, uh, you know, thank you guys for sitting down and talking with us. And, uh, you know, Kyle and I try and remain open minded and, and what, what works for us and what has worked for us. Um, that, that, that's, that's for Kyle and I, that's Kyle and I story, you know, and, and Stephen, from what he said from his very first time, didn't believe, you know, what he was being fed, you know, and so Stephen and Michelle have found something that worked for them. And, uh, I don't know. I just appreciate you guys sitting down talking with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just would say thank you for having the, I guess, courage to come onto a podcast where two people have done the 12 steps and share a different perspective you know i this uh yeah. i told aaron i said our agenda is not to uh argue at all it's more informational and inquisitive so i just i appreciate you guys coming on here and, and having the conversation and then um i wanted to make sure it's okay when we put this out we'll put up the uh the websites that that ryan had shared with us the freedommodel.org and everything is that all right to yeah, put up on there that'd be there? great so, cool. that'd yeah, be that'd great Wonderful. Yeah, and, and yeah, and anybody that wants to, uh, you, you had people have access to us directly, um, you know, at the toll-free number. We're we're right there. The phone is answered right at the retreat, and um, I'm there at least six days a week. Stephen is there oh. five days a week. Um, so, and Mark is there pretty much five or six days a week as well. So, um, yeah, this is this is what we do, and we we love it. So, awesome. thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Thank you. And I just want to say, uh, you know, just repeat the title of our book, The Freedom Model for Addictions, okay. Escape Treatment and Recovery okay. Trap. Um, so, uh, and, and, and yeah, just thank you so much for having us. I, I, likewise to what you said, um, you know, having the courage to, to have us wow. on such different views. That's yeah, great. Absolutely. That great. Yeah. Right on. Well, thank you guys very much. Thanks. Thanks.